Good children do taste better, but there are so few of them. If you can be satisfied with naughty children, you will always have food on the table. They are never in short supply. David Dumchuk, The Bone Mother. Welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast dedicated to the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm one of your hosts, Stephanie. And I'm your other host, Rachel. Today we're talking about books from the Great White North. That's right, we're talking about Canadian horror. It's cold up here, so grab a toque and a double-double before you join us on this episode of Books in the Freezer. I have no idea what you just said. This episode of Books in the Freezer is brought to you by Audible. This podcast wouldn't be possible without audiobooks. So if you want some spooky stories told by some familiar voices, try Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, read by Dexter's Michael C. Hall, or The Dead Zone, read by James Franco, or podcast favorite Joe Hill's Nosferatu, read by Kate Mulgrew. For a free audiobook and 30-day trial, go to audibletrial.com slash books in the freezer. Happy listening. So I am so excited that we are doing this episode on Canadian horror. I feel like I mention it every single episode, but I happen to be from Canada and I just love the excuse to talk more about that. But I don't think anyone's going to believe me. So can you say it and go on record that you were actually the one who suggested that we do this topic because I'm pretty sure everyone's going to think I strong armed you into this. (laughs) Yes, this one was my idea. I just noticed that we read a lot of Canadian fiction, a lot of Canadian horror. And I was like, why not highlight it? I know Rachel has a lot of opinions. Oh, yeah. So let's do it. I think a lot of people actually think you're from Canada, too. So maybe we should clear that up as well. Yeah, I think it gets brought up enough that I think people just lump us both in there. But I am actually American. I live in Pittsburgh, so not Canadian. I've actually never even been to Canada. I know you need to come visit. But yeah, Pittsburgh, not too close to Canada. I think a lot of the confusion came around like Canada Day when you'd posted and like wished everyone like happy Canada Day because I think you're around a lot of Canadian people like me. So you're at least aware of Canadian things. Yeah, because I'm friends with you and Devin from our indie episode. Exactly. We keep you up to date on the happenings up north. But even before that, I didn't realize you had a Canadian connection. Yeah. So my junior year in college, I actually had a roommate from Canada. And in case you're wondering how I knew she was from Canada, I think it's much like people who are vegans or who run marathons in that they will tell you that they are. (laughs) Yes, I think everyone who listens to this knows that because I'm constantly being like, so I'm from Canada. Did you know I'm from Canada? So here's something Canadian. Fun fact. Was that like your roommate? Oh my God, she would wait until something came up pop culture wise and we'd be talking about a movie and she'd say you know ryan gosling is canadian and did you know taylor lautner he's canadian and so is justin bieber and so is mike myers and so is jim carrey and she just went through this long list and i had to be like yeah well so is like avril lavigne and nickelback so like calm down yeah (laughs) we tried to keep those (laughs) ones on the down low 
And I think it's funny too, like we're so quick to call someone Canadian, even though like most of the actors you mentioned, which constantly get brought up as being Canadian, almost all of them live in the States now. Yeah. And then even people who are, say, born in the UK, if they move to Canada, oh, we'll call him Canadian. We're like, oh yeah, he's Canadian, even if like he moved (laughs) here at like 30. So we're, we're pretty loose when it comes to inclusion here. So I think, yeah, maybe we can make you like an unofficial member of Canada. I was telling okay. you that we're basically going to adopt you. Can I show that at the border? My unofficial resident status. I'll make you the cardboard cutout ID card. Okay. A little maple leaf. <laughs> Actually, I would think it would be a Tim's card now that I say that. That was another thing. My roommate found out that there was a gas station nearby that sold Tim Horton's coffee. And guess what else I would not stop hearing about? She was like, you don't understand, but in Canada, we have Tim Hortons and it's kind of a big deal. (laughs) So I do know now. I am aware. You at least know, yeah, what a double-double is? I didn't get into like the nitty-gritty of what's on the Tim Hortons menu. So what is a double-double? It's two cream and two sugars. Oh, okay. But you never order it. You order a double-double. So now you know. You could just ask for two cream and two sugar, though. (laughs) It's not the same. So talking about Canadian fiction, when you read it, do you notice that there's any themes or similarities or anything as a culture that you see reoccurring in stories? I was trying to think about this before the episode. It's so hard, of course, to make sweeping generalizations about entire publishing industry. And we do have a really healthy publishing industry in Canada. So the fact is, it's hard to say, well, all Canadian literature is like this. Just the fact that Canada is like geographically very large and diverse as a country. And so my own personal views of what is Canadian literature is going to be biased to my own feelings. Like I grew up in a mid-sized city in the Western provinces out by the prairies and then moved to a small town like we talked about before. So my perspective is really different than someone who say lived in like metropolitan Toronto or in the Maritimes or someone who lives like out in the like BC coast out by Victoria Island. And so I feel a little bit nervous speaking for all Canadians. I know there's going to be people listening and being like, well, that's not my Canadian experience. So a little nervous here. But all that being said, I think that we have a really amazing history and legacy of producing really amazing literary fiction. And you know me, I'm not someone who normally enjoys the more literary work, Mm -hmm. unless it's Canadian. Like the very few books I've read that are literary that I've liked, they've pretty much all been Canadian. And like I said, I'm horribly biased here, but I just think they do a really good job of making those stories accessible. Another thing I really see in Canadian lit is the fact that we are very progressive. I see a lot of representation of the socialist side of our country coming through in our books. And so there's a lot of queer stories that I see coming out. I noticed that a lot of the stories I talked about in our queer horror episode actually came from Canada. And of course, there's some of the more cliche things about Canadian fiction. The fact is that we live in a place that's very cold. We love to talk about it, and it definitely comes into our fiction. So you see a lot of stories that deal with themes of isolation and are often set during the winter months as well because we come from a culture of pioneering and farming roots, especially out west. I definitely see a lot of stories that deal with family ties and are very much focused on that family story going often through those generations. So lots of different areas to explore in Canadian lit. And then we also have the Canada Reads, which is done through CBC, 
what they do is they basically have five like Canadian celebrities, so people you've probably never heard of, go and argue their case about why their book should be the next great Canadian read. And they're all like really diverse. There's a lot of like great representation. Oh, and the other thing that also you'll see, of course, in Canadian stories is the fact that unsurprisingly, a lot of them take place in Canada, but I'm going to say not necessarily, not all the books we're going to talk about today are set in Canada. And I think that's because our culture is very diverse and we really are a country of immigrants. And unlike the States, you often describe your immigration as a melting pot that everyone comes to the States and become American. But here we like to call it the mosaic. So it's more that we like to, at least on a ideological level, basically celebrate everyone's diverse past. So you do see that in some of these stories that while they're often set in Canada, not necessarily. And like I said, you see a lot of those roots that as a country of immigrants, you actually get a lot of world representation too, which I really like because I like everything about Canadian lit clearly. Unfortunately, I don't think we're really well known for our Canadian horror, which is why I'm really glad we're doing this episode. I feel like more our literary scene is what gets highlighted internationally. So besides horror, have you read any Canadian lit yourself? Do you have any favorites? Well, one of my favorites would have to be Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. Have you read that one? I haven't. And I always forget that it's Canadian. So I'm actually (laughs) really happy for you to talk about this one. I loved it. So it's a post-apocalyptic story that happens after a pandemic. And there's three storylines. And one of them takes place kind of during while everything is going down. One of them is set a few years before. And then one of them is set, I want to say like a decade or two after the pandemic. So like how the world is now. So like the current world or like the after the pandemic storyline is following a girl who is with a traveling Shakespeare troupe and they put on shows all around. I mean, a lot of the book talks about the perseverance and eternal nature of art and how we will always have it and always need it no matter what the circumstances but I loved it I did want to say there is a very Canadian scene that I was reading it and I was like this would not happen this way (laughs) in the states what happened Well, one of the settlements in the future is in an airport, and we are following kind of how that settlement came to be. So all these people are stranded in an airport as everything is going down, as you know, like the world is slowly falling apart. 90% of the world is hit with this virus and the world is falling apart. And so this group of people there just sit there patiently and wait for help. And they are talking about how days have gone by and they have run out of quarters for the vending machines for food. And I'm like, you have gone days and you are still using quarters for the vending machines like no one has tried to break them or like tip them over. And then I forget how many days have passed, but they all finally decide that they are going to try to go to the restaurant and scavenge for food. And they feel very guilty about it until someone in their party has an Amex and he's like, well, put it on my card and he slaps it on the counter. And like then everyone feels okay about going in the kitchen and finding food. Oh, that's hilarious. I'm like, imagine this happening at LAX or O'Hare. It would be chaos within like an hour. They're just so polite at the end of the world. I know. You don't want to break the rules. They're there for a reason. They're like, okay, guys, are we okay? Like, we're all decided we're going to go into this kitchen. We're like, just do it. There is no rules. There is no world. Oh, you've got to follow the rules. We are known for being very polite and very accommodating. Very civilized. Oh, exactly. 
And the second book was a middle grade book that I read in junior high that was one of those weird books. Like I picked it up from the library. I read it and loved it. And then thinking about it, it kind of seemed like a dream. That book was called Awake and Dreaming by Kit Pearson. And it's about a girl who lives with her mother and they have a bit of a rough life. They live in poverty and she has dreams of having a real family and she gets taken in by this really nice family called the Kaldor family. And throughout the story, she doesn't know what's real and what's a dream because it's like one of those like she goes to sleep and she's like with this family and she wakes up and she's in this world and it kind of plays with reality a little bit. I don't know. I really loved it, though. That sounds good. I've never heard of that one. So I like that you found ones that I've never heard of. So how about you? Do you have any faves? I have too many. I'll try to keep it under wraps. Of course, I have to talk about Margaret Atwood. My favorite of hers is The Edible Woman, which is about a woman who gets engaged and loses her appetite and then soon begins to feel as if she herself is getting consumed. It's just such a wonderful feminist piece of literature. I think more people are familiar with The Handmaid's Tale, which of course is now a TV show on Hulu. Mm -hmm. And it's more dystopian, but in a lot of ways, the ideas that Margaret Atwood plays with could roll into the realm of horror. She certainly imagines a dark future. And her stories are typically classified as either dystopian or speculative fiction, but they're dark. And of course, another one of my favorites is Life of Pi by Yann Martell. And everyone knows the iconic story of the boy stranded on the lifeboat with the tiger, but it's really a book about so much more. There's some beautiful imagery in it, and it really is a story about belief and religion, and I just love it. So I always recommend that one. Another one that I really like, and it comes from my roots of being out west in a more isolated part of Canada, is Crow Lake by Mary Lawson. And this follows the aftermath of a set of siblings who lose their parents in a car accident. And then it's all about them basically trying to move on with their lives and deal with the aftermath of this tragedy. And it again deals with themes of isolation. But at the same time, while they're in this isolated northern place, you also get to see the community really come together and support this young family. So love that one too. That sounds really good. I have a Mary Lawson book on my shelf that I keep meaning to get to, but I always tell myself I'm going to save it for winter. I think I would like her a lot. I think so. So I'm going to have to bug you next winter about that. (laughs) And then if people are looking for even more recommendations, because I admit like I'm not an expert on Canadian literature, I definitely lean to more genre fiction, but I highly recommend either checking out the list for past winners of the CBC Canada Reads event, which we mentioned is like a tournament of books that is run every year through our Broadcasting Association. Or the Scotiabank Giller Prize is another great one to check out. One of the books that we're going to mention here today was shortlisted for that, so we'll get to that in a minute. But that is just a great resource for finding just really high-quality, excellent books that all have Canadian roots. And I understand that Canada is also very iconic when it comes to making horror films, which actually isn't something I knew a lot about, but you were the one telling me. So do you want to go into that a little bit? Yeah, I'm actually not well-versed in that I haven't seen a lot of these, but I feel like there is a very large awareness about them. Probably one of the more classic ones is the original Black Christmas, which I haven't seen. I think I've only seen snippets of the remake, unfortunately. Also, Pontypool, which came out in 2008, which is another one on my to-watch list that I want to get. There's a few. One that I did watch, though, and I wanted to talk about was Cube. Have you seen that one? I haven't, but you recommended it to me. You're like, you would like this. And everything you say about it, I think I really would. Yeah, it was really fun. So five people wake up in a kind of labyrinthian 
contraption almost. They don't know how they got there. And there's these giant rooms with different points of entry. But through trial and error, realize that sometimes like if you go through a wrong door, there are death traps that are motion censored and will just kill you immediately in very creative and painful ways. So they group together and there's a young girl with them who turns out to be a math whiz and she realizes the pattern that if you go, each door has a set of numbers on them and the doors where there is a prime number those are the ones that will kill you. So they are like looking through all of these numbers and trying to find which ports of entry are accessible and find their way out. And of course, in movies like this, where you have groups of strangers that are put in stressful situations together, you're going to have clashes of personality, you're going to have people not getting along and the stress of the life or death situation getting to people, which you know is one of my favorite things. I really enjoyed this movie. I know this has a bit of a cult following too, and a few sequels, which I haven't seen, I'll admit. It sounds really fun, but of course, we both have a strange idea of what fun is, but that's one <laughs> I, I definitely wanted to check out. It was a while ago, you're we like, there's some really great Canadian films, you should watch these. And I'm like, I should. And then I didn't. So story of my life. I will get to that one though. I will. But one that I have just recently watched is Ginger Snaps. I know that's one that you've wanted to check out for a while too, right? Yeah. It's never streaming anywhere. So I need to just buy it or like get it from my library or something. Yeah. This is about two sisters that are fascinated by death. They're always taking pictures of each other that are making it look like they are dead. And the movie starts with this amazing montage during the credits where it's all of these like death pictures and it's just dark. And so when one of the two sisters gets her period, she attracts the attention of a werewolf who smells the blood and attacks her. And after that attack, she begins to transform into a lustful beast. The synopsis sounds ridiculous, but it's not like a dumb Rachel movie. In fact, it's like really well regarded. It's such a feminist piece. It deals a lot with women coming of age and how society really treats women. It's a little bit older, which means the special effects aren't as amazing, of course, as newer movies. But if you can look past that, like the story is just really well done. And the one thing you'll find with a lot of Canadian movies is that they don't always have really huge budgets. A lot of these are more indie films. But they're definitely not the like Steven Spielberg blockbuster movies. So I think that's why they're not always like front titles. But again, I'm really biased and think that while they don't have huge amounts of money thrown at them, they end up being really well written. And like they do a lot with a small budget, which I think it's especially hard in horror because it's hard to make a really good horror movie without like tons of money to throw at special effects. Yeah, this movie, I mean, is one that always comes up when people talk about Canadian horror. And it's also one that has a big cult following. Yeah, I feel like there's so many people who love it. And I'm glad I got to check it out before we recorded because it's worth seeing for sure. It's a good one. Well, let's turn this over and talk about some book recommendations. And we've realized that we've actually done a really good job talking about Canadian horror authors in previous episodes. So for the sake of not repeating a lot of recommendations, we're actually not going to be mentioning some of our favorites. So we're not going to be recommending any books by Nick Cutter, Joey Camo, or Ian Reid. We love all their books. They're all Canadian, but we've been really good about talking about Canadian lit without even trying. And it's not just me. You've mm -hmm. been doing it too. Like we've talked about all three oh, of yeah. Nick Cutter's books in the last six months. So we're going to try to mix it up and talk about some other ones. All that being said, I was stressing picking out books for this episode because I wanted to squeeze in as many as possible. I wanted to mention as many authors. So of course, I ended up going with at least one anthology. 
So I'm going to be talking about Dead North, Canadian zombie fiction, which is edited by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, and she is a Canadian of Mexican descent. And before everyone rolls their eyes and tunes out, let me be clear that yes, this is a collection of zombie short stories that are set in Canada, but this is more of a literary collection. It's not the campy zombie stories that you obviously are all thinking that Rachel picked out. So it's not as cheesy as it sounds. In fact, it's actually like incredibly well-written. Most of the authors in this collection are Canadian, although not all of them, but all the books are set in Canada. And I'm gonna be talking about a few of my favorites here. Even if you don't normally like zombie fiction, this is a really good anthology to pick up because as the introduction to this anthology said, it basically breaks the zombie rules. Sylvia Moreno-Garcia asked all the authors to think outside the box. And so it's not necessarily zombie fiction, but more stories featuring undead or resurrected humans. So there's a lot of good variety in it. I love the fact that this collection incorporates a lot of First Nation mythology. That's something I really was looking for in this episode is to make sure that we are being representative. As for stories, there was a couple I really liked in this collection. One of my favorites is All the Fathomless Crowds by Ada Hoffman, and she's from Ontario. This is a bizarre story of a woman who is completing her final exam at the Queen's University in her studies in the Department of Survival. It sounds ridiculous. Part of the test is this practical component where she has to navigate through the city of Kingston, Ontario without attacking zombies, which are called non-mines in this story. And at the same time, she also has to do a written component, which you get to read, where she has to answer questions like, list the major known causes of the non-mundane events, including the creation and control of the non-minds, and explain the implications for the minded. And then you get to see her answers and responses. One that's a little bit more classic, and of course was another one of my favorites, was The Food Truck of the Zombie Apocalypse by Beth Wazinski. And this is actually a US author, but I wanted to mention it just because the story itself is so Canadian. It's about a poutine truck driver who picks up a hitchhiker during the zombie apocalypse. And I'm like, it's a poutine <laughs> truck driver. How can you get more Canadian than that? Have you ever had poutine, Stephanie? No, I haven't, but I have seen people Instagram it and I'm like, I love everything about this picture. Yeah, it's probably not the healthiest thing that we eat, but cheese curds and gravy on fries is absolutely delicious. And one more I want to mention from this collection is Waiting for Jenny Rex by Melissa Yoon Eames. And this is a story about a woman who wakes up from the dead and goes to the newspaper in Ottawa to tell her story as an advocate against anorexia. This one is not scary at all. It really breaks the mold for zombie stories because, again, she's really not this, like, brainless creature, but instead this undead person who is just campaigning against this eating disorder. It's bizarre. It's almost more of a romance thrown in there or a character study. I, it's so hard to describe this one, but trust me, it's really great. For the most part, this collection was very room temperature. Again, it's more literary than genre fiction, and I do recommend it. Honestly, not every story in the collection was my favorite, but I think it's a great way to check out a bunch of Canadian lit and the book I want to talk about is also a short story collection, and this is Darkest Hours Stories by Mike Thorne. I loved this collection of horror stories. First of all, the cover looks like a beat up VHS tape. Well, like, you know, when you recorded videos back then, it had like that spot for you to put what it was. And so like the title is like sharpied in. Yes, I've seen that cover. I was going to mention it if you didn't. It's so retro. I love it. <laughs> 
Yes, and you would love it. The first story that starts out this collection is called Hair, and it's about this man named Theodore who becomes obsessed with the idea of eating hair. And I am so glad that I wasn't eating anything while I was reading this. I don't know his obsession and how he thinks about it. At one point in the story, the phrase fibrous morsels is used to describe hair. And I was like, Bleh. I think I'd be throwing <laughs> up in my mouth a little bit. But it was great. I mean, if you can handle a little more gross out horror, they are not all like that. I will say every story is very different in the kind of stuff that it explores. There's kind of a Slender Man story. There's a Satanic Panic story. There's a story I liked called uh, I feel like I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Mictian Diabolos, which is about uh, teenagers breaking into a school where there was people murdered in a ritualistic fashion. And then I think probably the one where the cover gets its inspiration was called The Auteur, who was about a guy who worked at a video store and he's kind of flirting with this girl and she's kind of getting him into horror movies and teasing him that he couldn't handle like her movies like that she makes because those are the real deal. And eventually you find out if he could or not. There was also another story I really liked. Reading the reviews, this was the story people were like, meh about but I really enjoyed it. It was called Fear and Grace and it was about this woman meeting up with a colleague and she is reminiscing about a time when she met up with him when she saw like a very dark and violent side of him and it's just about looking at someone who's a psychopath and just seeing like the emptiness in their eyes and just a story about that gave me like the willies. Yeah, that definitely sounds right up your alley. That sounds good, too. I really want to check out that collection now. Yeah, it was really good. There really wasn't like a, you know how most short story collections have like a eh story. I felt like for me, I didn't find that in this. I really liked all of the stories. I liked how different they all were. There was even a survival horror story, like a bunch of people going camping and stuff going wrong. Yeah, it was very varied and very well put together. This one I would put in the fridge because some of them get pretty gruesome. So that is Darkest Hours Stories by Mike Thorne. Oh, I would love to check that one out. I saw you reading it and saw the cover and I was like, that looks so much fun. And then everything you're describing, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I've definitely got to read that one too. And then my next pick is Only the Devil is Here by Steph and Michelle. And this is an author from Ontario. This book starts out with a man named Rook who breaks into a home and kidnaps a six-year-old boy named Evan after murdering his foster parents. At first, Evan tries to get away from this violent man, but he soon realizes that Rook might actually be protecting him from something so much worse and might not actually be the monster that he seems to be. This book is is lighter on the side of horror. I would almost call it to be a bit more of a supernatural thriller. At first when I was reading it, I was kind of worried that it wasn't going to be horror enough to include it, but it definitely picks up towards the end. So while this is very room temperature, I feel safe to put it in this episode. I wanted to include it just because it has so many good Canadian references. He just brought up things like Tim Hortons and Tooks and the RCMP and Greyhound buses. And some of these things may not mean a lot to everyone listening, but I definitely picked them out like very specific things that would just only make sense necessarily if you're in Canada. Some of them like Tim Hortons, most people know, but I thought it was interesting because you will find that a lot of Canadian authors will purposely hide those Canadian elements in their books. You'll often see books and also movies that are made in Canada or written here. 
and then they'll take out those elements and actually kind of Americanize the books, either making the references generic, like something like Starbucks, or actually setting their stories in the States. But this one is heavily Canadian. And you have a book that is about a man who kidnaps a child. And this should be an incredibly dark and terrible book. But Rook ends up being a more complicated, morally gray character. And this book is not what it seems. And you end up seeing that there is good even in the darkness. It's so bizarre that you end up having like this nice story about a kidnapping. So despite the fact that you would think it's a story about a child at harm, I am going to say this is a very room temperature. So that again is Only the Devil is Here by Stephen Michelle. That's really funny. It's like, how do you get a story where you're like, oh, he's kind of nice. <laughs> Although he did murder the foster parents at the beginning, but yeah, you know. You do what you gotta do. Exactly. You can't get too mad at a person. The next book I want to talk about is The Bone Mother by David Dumchuk, who is a friend of the show. And this book takes place in a neighboring village on the Romanian-Ukrainian border. And it's marketed as a novel, but I will say it reads a lot more like short stories, kind of dark fables, fairy tales, with a lot of mythical creatures. Each chapter is a different story, and they are all prefaced by very cool black and white pictures that are actually from Romania during that era, like the 30s, 40s. And I just think they added such a fascinating layer to the story while reading it. This is currently nominated for a Shirley Jackson Award. And I know Rachel alluded to it earlier, but this was shortlisted for the Giller Prize in Canada. And I believe it was the first time a horror novel was ever nominated. Is that right? Yeah, so that was super exciting. It was the first time ever. And it was really nice to see horror getting a literary nod in our Canadian awards. Yeah, that's really exciting. Like I said, these stories mostly take place in an Eastern European village. There are reoccurring themes you see tying the stories together. The mention of a night police and a thimble factory that kind of places them all within the same setting or close to each other. And I really like this. I've noticed I do enjoy folkloric urban legend kind of stories and this had a lot of them obviously I'm not super familiar with what would be Romanian folklore or Eastern European folklore but I found a lot of these chilling and there are even some stories that take place I think there's like a handful of them that take place in present day and a lot of those I thought were frightening I thought those were actually probably the scariest ones Mm -hmm. people dealing with what remains of the mythical creatures or dealing with ghosts and stuff from the past those I think were the ones that probably scared me the most and I know Rachel you've read this as well yes I was just saying how much I love this collection I thought the pictures really added so much. I'd love to know if the pictures were the inspiration for the stories or if they're added afterwards. I know they came from a Romanian photographer. Those pictures became public domain and were available for the book. And also the fact that while it is a novel, I definitely also agree it reads like short stories. So I'd love to know how exactly it gets the classification of novel because obviously that was done purposefully. So maybe David, if he wants to chime in, I'd love to know a little bit of the backstory behind this one because I just thought it was fascinating and I'm not even someone who likes folklore typically and I really like this one so I think an author that can pull me into a subgenre that I'm like oh I'm, I'm not into folklore horror and I'm like but I'm into the bone mother and that quote at the beginning that you read I love it so much like we always try to pick out a fun quote but that's one that I think we both just love Oh, definitely. Also, something else that I really liked in this story is that there are a lot of queer characters. 
David Timchuk is an out gay man. And I just thought that was really great, just how fluid everything went. Absolutely. Ever since our queer horror episode, I've been seeing so many more fantastic examples of queer horror, and this is just another one to add to the list. There's so much out there. You just need to look for it. It's wonderful. Yeah, I remember I started reading this like days after we recorded our queer horror episode, and I was thinking, this would have been great. Scariness-wise, where'd you put it on the rating scale? I would say fridge. There was a lot of room temperature stories. I mean, with different kinds of folklore, not everything works for everyone, but some of them were chilling. So for that reason, I'm putting it in the fridge. I'd agree with that. And so that was The Bone Mother by David Demchuk. And my next pick is Night Face by Lydia Peaver, who is from Ontario. This story starts with a high school student named Gunner who has an encounter with a mysterious ageless man named Solomon. Ten years later, Gunner wakes up in a hospital with no memories. He can't remember who he is or where he came from, but he slowly starts to piece together his life when he meets a girl from his past. And you might not be able to tell it from that synopsis, but this is a very dark piece of vampire fiction, which I didn't think I was into vampire fiction until we did that episode. And then Stephanie pulled me (laughs) down the rabbit hole, and now I just keep picking it up. This one is the kind of vampire fiction I prefer. It's violent with amoral, dark, monstrous creatures. This is definitely not paranormal romance. So despite the high school setting at the beginning, this is also not Twilight, not the Vampire Diaries, because at first I was like, oh, it's like teen vampires. But despite that first chapter, it then jumps forward to the future where the main character is suffering from amnesia and the story really goes from there. I like the fact that the vampires are sexualized without being romanticized, so I do have to give a trigger warning for sexual assault and attempted rape right at the beginning of the book. Not a spoiler, but just a heads up there. I think those aspects were handled very well, but they are definitely part of the book, so again, this is one of those books that you can't just give to anyone. You have to be prepared if you're going to pick it up. In terms of Canadian references, it is set in Ontario where the author is from, And then it also deals with a lot of things involving Canadian identification. Because he's lost his memory, he's trying to figure out who he is. We're talking about social insurance numbers. And also bringing up health cards because, of course, we have our healthcare system in Canada where it's publicly funded by the government. In terms of scariness, I'd have to put this at least in the fridge because it is very bloody and very violent. So that, again, is Night Face by Lydia Peaver. That sounds really good. I heard vampire and I was adding it to my list. You know me. (laughs) I know. I'm just like, oh, vampire story. Stephanie will like this. And my last pick is A God in the Shed by J.F. Dubow. And this takes place in the small town of St. Ferdinand that had been plagued by a series of killings for decades. And they finally think they have the murderer. I mean, he had a bunch of refrigerators on his property with dead bodies stuffed inside. So, you know, it's looking pretty good that they have the right guy. But the murders don't stop. And just the whole crime scene is very eerie. They find a couch outside on his property facing a cave. And like all around the couch, there are sticks that are propping up eyeballs taken out of the victims. And all the eyeballs are pointing towards the cave. It's just very eerie. So like, what are the eyes 
you're wondering, what are the eyes looking at? Is the town of St. Ferdinand hiding a dark secret? Yes, they are. I really liked this book. This book is hard to fit into a box because I was trying to think like, is this like a small town with a secret? Because I think it's one of those stories like the more you read, the more you are finding like people in the town doing shady things that have some kind of involvement with kind of this ancient deity. And there is a big storyline on the dichotomy between the adults and the young people and how they are dealing with this differently in the difference between generations. But what I liked about it is that it's a bit of a crime novel and it has a little bit of a procedural bent where we're following the detective and someone coming in and looking at the evidence and running this stuff. And of course, it can't go that way for too long because there is obviously a supernatural element at bay. And it just it played with so many things and it was so just deliciously dark. It's very twisty turny. You don't know who to trust, like who has a secret, who's part of this, you know, conspiracy. I would put this in the freezer. It has very gruesome scenes in case you couldn't glean that from what I described earlier with people's eyeballs being propped up on sticks. That is just the beginning. So this was a freezer book. Oh, gosh, I really want to read that one. Like ever since you mentioned you were reading it a little while back, it's been very high up on my list. I need to get a copy somehow. Yeah, and then the author mentioned that there will be a sequel coming out, which I am very excited to get to and see. I've got to catch up now. So that is A God in the Shed by J.F. Dubow. I want to sneak in one last pick, and that is The Bear Who Wouldn't Leave by J.H. Moncrief. This is a female Canadian horror author from Winnipeg, Manitoba, so representing the West out here. And this is actually a novella. It's told from the perspective of a young boy who's 10 years old named Josh, who is gifted an old, ugly teddy bear from his new stepfather. Josh immediately dislikes this ugly little bear and tries to hide it in his closet, but it keeps returning itself to his bed. He quickly learns that this bear does not like to be rejected and starts to cause mischief in the night and is getting Josh in trouble by making messes and breaking his mother's possessions. At the same time, Josh is struggling to get along with his stepfather, who is becoming more and more abusive, punishing the boy for the teddy bear's actions. Josh becomes desperate to get rid of the bear completely, but the teddy bear, Edgar, just doesn't want to leave. And this is the kind of story that I really enjoy. It's basically the question of whether or not something is actually happening or whether or not it's the child's imagination. Is this bear actually doing things in the night or is this Josh's imagination at play, maybe interpreting the abuse that's going on in his real life and seeing it through the lens of this evil bear? There are some potential supernatural elements, but really at the core of this, it's the evil of people, which is something we talk about all the time on the podcast, absolutely love. It's very dark and depressing and definitely has some triggering subject matter when it comes to abuse. So not for everyone, you have to be in the right place to read this. But if you want a gripping, dark story, this is a good one. I would put it at least in the fridge. And that is The Bear That Wouldn't Leave by J.H. Moncrief. All right, now to talk about our chilling obsessions or non-bookish horror things that we are really into right now. I actually have two HBO shows. One of them is more horror than the other, but I just want to talk about both of them. I'll just talk about the non-horror one first and get it out of the way. But I am loving Barry on HBO. Have you heard of this? No, I know nothing about it. So tell me. <laughs> 
So this stars Bill Hader from Saturday Night Live fame, and he is a hitman. And he has a job, a hit out in Hollywood for this Chechnyan gang. And while he's there, he is following his target and he sits in on an acting class and he falls in love with the class, with the atmosphere and decides that he wants to give up being a hitman to pursue acting full time. (laughs) This sounds wonderful so far. It's amazing. It is very dark comedy. It feels a lot like a Coen Brothers movie because it gets very dark. It's very bloody. You know, he still has to continue working as a hitman and try to kind of keep this double life. And there's an investigation going on and all this stuff is happening. I will say one of my favorite characters is one of the uh, Chechen gang members named Noho Hank. And he is hilarious. (laughs) Just everything he said had me cracking up. I will say the villains in this are very almost cartoony, but it's just that very silly humor, just totally contrasting with this very dark, very bloody like murder showdown scenes. And I don't know if you ever watch a lot of stuff with like organized crime, there's a lot of those like very stressful scenes where like someone's like holding a gun to someone's head and it's very high pressure. There's a lot of scenes like that. And then it just gets like very silly and how he gets obsessed with the acting culture. And I know a lot of people say like acting classes and improv and stuff is like a cult and you kind of see that this very insular community and they bring him in and he feels like he's a part of something and it was just so great the whole season is on hbo now i think it's like eight or ten episodes and i highly recommend it if you like dark comedies and my other chilling obsession is sharp objects which just premiered on hbo and it was one of the adaptations that we were looking forward to immensely because we are both big Gillian Flynn fans. And I loved it. Amy Adams is in the lead role as Camille Preaker. And I do have to say the actress that they cast as the younger version of her is Beverly from It. Actress Sophia Lillis is a perfect young Amy Adams. Just they keep going back and forth and it is uncanny. Like, I honestly believe she is a younger version of Amy Adams. And obviously the show just started. So we are just getting a lot of introduction to the crime and the cast of characters. There is a very good atmosphere that is set in this town of Wind Gap. And Chris Messina from the Mindy Project, Danny Castellano is the lead detective working on the case. So I love him. I do too. I was like so happy to see him. I said, no one told me Chris Messina was in this. I'm so jealous that you're getting to watch this. I don't have HBO streaming in Canada and I'm really, really jealous right now. I'm sorry. What's your chilling obsession? (laughs) I am currently playing through a video game with my husband, and that is called Until Dawn, which is a horror survival game that's available on the PS4. It's set in Western Canada, although it's not really Western Canada. It's clearly an American game, and they're just like, oh, it's snowing outside, so we'll say this is Canada. (laughs) And so my husband and I were like rolling our eyes. It's supposedly super cold out, but no one has mitts or a toucan, so it's not that cold out. What is a toque? I do have to ask. You mentioned it earlier. Oh, do you really not know? A toque is like a winter hat, like a woolen hat. Is that what you'd call it? I guess. Sure. (laughs) What do you put on your head when it's cold? A beanie. Don't beanies have like the little twirly thing on top? What? (laughs) You know, the little like fan that like whizzes around. So it's like a little helicopter. Are you talking about like those uh, Pee Wee Herman hats? (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's a beanie. You're like, going to put on my beanie today. It's a little chilly out. A beanie is just like one of those cloth hats you wear in the winter, like the fabric hats to keep your Yeah, that's a toque. (laughs) 
I've never heard it called a beanie before. That's funny. Go on talking about your game. I interrupted. Yeah, I sidetracked us. So this game centers around a group of teenagers who every year go up to a remote cabin where they hang out and party. However, last year, two of the girls mysteriously disappeared and were never found again. Now, a year later, the friends are returning back to the cabin where they find themselves under attack by some kind of psycho and are attempting to survive until sunrise, which is where the title comes from. I bought this as a Christmas gift for my husband, which was basically a gift for myself. He likes video games and I like horror, so I'm like, oh, it'll be perfect. And he's like, oh, this looks fun. But we're playing through it together, which means I sit there and tell him what to do and he like does all the like jumping around. And it's very much a story-based game, so even if you're not a gamer, you can definitely play this. Like most of it is just watching the characters interact and a lot of it is just making choices of how you react to the things that they say. And the cool thing with a game like this is that the choices actually affect the outcome of the game. So whether or not you choose to go down into the lair or open the door or the closet or anything like that is going to determine whether or not you live or die, if someone loses a leg, which character dies, all of that. So I really like the fact that we get to influence the game. But the thing is, this whole game is about teenagers. And so because we're a little bit past those teenage years, my husband and I are basically cheering for all the teenagers <laughs> to die because there's some super annoying ones. So I feel like we're supposed to be all devastated when like the cute girl dies and we're like, yay, she's dead. Finally, she was so <laughs> annoying. So I'm not sure we're playing it right. Like, I mean this recommendation a little bit tongue in cheek. It's so much fun to play through. I do find it kind of cheesy teen drama. There's lots of talk about ex-boyfriends and who's dating who. But if you want this like a fun teen slasher and are just looking for like an entertaining video game to go through, it's a lot of fun. And that, of course, is Until Dawn. Like if you get a chance to play it, like it'd be funny to see like you and your <laughs> husband go through this one, Stephanie. <laughs> see if you make the same choices as we did. Yeah, we'll have to try it out. It'd be funny. <laughs> Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod or on Instagram at Books in the Freezer, or you can email us at booksinthefreezer at gmail.com. Show notes for this episode and all previous episodes will be at booksinthefreezer.com. A special thank you to our patrons, Laura, Liz, Devin, Sarai, Roger, Emily, Denise, Anthony, Jason, Leanne, Elizabeth, Sean, Mitch, Alicia, Christopher, David, and PT. You can find us on Patreon under Books in the Freezer. If you're looking for a free way to support the podcast, be sure to leave us a review on a podcast app like iTunes or Stitcher. It helps people find us. I actually do have a review right now. It was on CastBox, which is the podcast app that I use. It's from Cooper Harris, who says, Required listening for anyone seeking a finger-on-the-vein perspective on horror as literature. Stephanie and Rachel are informed, compassionate readers and casters. The long and short of it, these hosts know their shit. And if you consider yourself a participant in the ongoing exploration of what is arguably our oldest and most primally resonant storytelling form, listen to them. They'll show you exactly what you need in the freezer. That is such a compliment. Yeah, that is pretty much the best review. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Cooper Harris. You made our day. Anyway, I am Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N. Or if you want my bookish Instagram, that's at that's what she read with two A's in that's or on YouTube at that's what she read. And I'm Rachel. You can find me on Twitter at shades underscore orange or I'm also on YouTube and Instagram at the shades of orange. Join us next time for Books in the Freezer.